We thank you for your glory in creation. We thank you, Lord, for your power and authority over your enemies. We thank you for the victory of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you conquered our stubborn hearts and gave us faith and brought us into your kingdom. Lord, you've made us in your church. You've put yourself as head over the church, and you feed your church and do it so well. Would you feed us this afternoon, this evening, with your food of the word? Would you give us encouragement? Would you raise our thoughts toward heaven where you are seated, Lord Jesus? Give us great thoughts of you, great thoughts of our salvation. We pray, Lord, for encouragement and equipping and joy in your glorious name. Amen. You could be seated. Well, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 10 this evening. Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me ask you to think about your day. What was your happiest moment? What today caused you to rejoice? Or maybe you had a relatively rough day. That's all right, that'll work too. Think about what would have made for a great day. Or just in general, what causes you to rejoice? What makes you happy? Think about your life thus far. Imagine that your whole life has been tied to a joy-o-meter. They don't exist, but just imagine so. You've been hardwired with something that records all of your emotional ups and downs and charts every level you find yourself at throughout any given day or throughout your life. When and for what has your joyometer spiked? Last spring, out of the blue, I got an email from a friend who's part of a ministry which invited me uh, almost free of charge to take my wife and come to Maui for a conference. My joyometer spiked pretty big that day. I didn't even ask my wife. I said yes, and I went home, and I used that headship thing, and I said, we're going to Maui. And my wife's joyometer spiked. In the summer of 1995, it was getting clearer that this girl, Sarah Abbas, that I really had eyes for, was reciprocating that. And we started courting in view of marriage. And man, that, that summer was a, was a good one for my joy-o-meter, as was our wedding or the birth of our kids. Those have all been high points. Going home after work most every day actually is a tick upward in my joy-o-meter. Uh, sometimes food covered in cheese will move my joy-o-meter upward. All of these are blessings, and they're worth joy, rightly so. And yet we as Christians know that God's joy can often transcend the temporary gifts, good as those temporary gifts are. True and lofty joy, spiritual joy, is far from limited to what is material or what is even relational. Some of you for years have prayed for a, a mother or father to come to faith in Jesus. 
You've had those hard conversations about sin in the gospel and what Jesus did upon the cross. And, and for years, you were shut down, sometimes even made fun of. Maybe they stormed out of the room. And then after years, one day, the dominoes started falling. Right? The penny finally dropped. God granted repentance and gave them faith, and they were saved. Your joyometer about broke, didn't it? Huh? I mean, this is eternal. This is of eternal significance. It's, it's never been the same since God gave that answer to prayer. Life is full of all kinds of joys, of different kinds, different degrees. But Luke 10 takes us on a tour of a few of the highest joys one can ever know or ponder or experience. It shows us three great joys, three planes of joy or levels of joy. My prayer for us tonight is that we would be taken up into it. We'd be swept up in this pursuit of joy. That is God's pursuit of joy. That he's behind, that he wants us further in. Let's start with Luke 10, verses 1 and 2, where we get the setting. Here's the setting. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, tonight we're going to focus on verses 17 to 24. But we start here in verses 1 to 2 because verses 3 to 16 are a bit of a parenthesis. There, Jesus gives further instructions for these 72 about their journey. Don't take money. Don't take a coat. Uh, here's who you stay with and here's who you leave alone, all that kind of stuff. But then at verse 17, the 72 return back from their little mission trip. And a lot has happened in this short amount of text. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So I said, we've got three levels of joy here. Here's the first one, a great joy, a great joy. The 72 returned from their, their little mission with joy. And they said, Lord, the demons are subject to us in your name. They were sent out by Jesus to go and do what he did. It says in verse one, to, to go before him. So it's not just exorcisms that they're supposed to be doing. They're, they're supposed to preach, they're supposed to heal, and, and also cast out demons. Presumably, casting out demons would have been the hardest. In fact, in the last chapter, chapter 9, they couldn't do it. There, a guy had a son, and his son was sick, and a spirit had seized him, and he begged the disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. So presumably they put this in their exclamation to Jesus at the end of what is no doubt a longer list. They, they, they preached and probably saw conversions. 
They healed and saw people physically changed. They saw demons come out of people and their souls and bodies be restored. They had power over demons in Jesus' name. Demons, those fallen angels. Demons obeyed them. This isn't just for one or two of the 72 that were sent out. It seems to be that this was the collective experience. Two by two, they went out. So you've got groups of 36. Well, no, 36 groups of two. 36 groups all have this same collective experience of preaching and conversions take place, of healing and people get up and walk, of exorcisms and demons obey them. Not to mention the simpler blessings of just being provided for even though they went out without food and being protected on their journeys even though some no doubt rejected them. You have to wonder, does it get any better than this? I mean, I've preached a a few decent sermons in my life. There have been a couple times where someone has said right then that they were converted in the preaching of God's word. It's an awesome preaching moment. It's great for a pastor. But this, the the experience of the 72 is a preacher's dream. And so they have great joy. And Jesus not only affirms their joy in their success in his name, but he takes it up a notch, doesn't he? Verse 18, look at that. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus tells them about something he sees in a cosmic hidden realm about what was taking place when they were doing their mission's work. What is it? Satan falling like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Well, Satan's defeat has always been sure, but it has come in stages, and really we can say is still, in a sense, coming in stages. So think of the temptation in the wilderness where there Satan met with Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus, and Jesus won. He won. He walked away. Satan didn't win. There's something there of Jesus prevailing and and winning. Or think of Jesus' exorcisms over demons as something like a hint. Remember he says that the strong man had broken into the weak man's house and was now plundering his goods. That's what demons being cast out of people is all about. Jesus showing his power and the coming doom of the satanic kingdom. The cross, though, was the momentous occasion. That was the D-Day of Jesus' defeat of Satan. It wasn't the V-Day, though. That's coming still. There's a V-Day, a victory day still, when Jesus returns. And then he'll throw Satan and his minions into a lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Until that day, Satan still roars about and roams about as a, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
And so we can go back and forth with different parts of the Bible and see different things. Either it seems like he's on the run and loose and has some authority or some effect, and then some other passages of Scripture which show this is as good as done and it's being undone. Like just the fact that Christians can resist the devil. The devil. The highest of God's created beings. Christians have the power and ability to resist him. Revelation 12 talks about us conquering him because of Jesus' authority. It doesn't mean Satan doesn't do anything. He accuses the brothers day and night. Revelation 12 says, He accuses the brothers before the throne day and night, but they have conquered him. How? Well, these three simple ways. They've conquered him. Number one, by the blood of the Lamb, because of what Jesus did. Number two, by the word of their testimony, by preaching the gospel, they conquer Satan. And number three, by, willing to, by being willing to die for it. In those simple ways, Christians like you and me, and like these 72 disciples, conquer Satan. So Luke 2 is somewhere in all that, and it's a sliver. It's a moment-in-time window into one of the stages of Satan's defeat. We don't want to minimize the importance of Satan's true and significant defeat at the cross, or we don't want to minimize the, the, the necessity of his final defeat when Jesus comes again. But we also don't want to minimize the, the successful mission trip of the 72 as one window into Christ's defeat of Satan using them, using their preaching, using their hands. At this point in redemptive history, no other 70-plus human beings had done anything this grand, this cosmic, this eternal, and this significant. It's off the charts. Of course, it wasn't in their power or their, their name. It was in Jesus' name, and it was his authority that he gave them. But the experience was indeed theirs, and they rightly returned with great joy. But then Jesus redirects their focus for even greater joy. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, Jesus says, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a greater joy. It looks like a negation of the first joy, their celebration of having power over demons in Jesus' name. I don't think Jesus is rebuking that joy because of what he first said. When they came back with joy, he said, yeah, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. But he is redirecting their focus. He's seeking to elevate their joy by pointing to their salvation. Their names are written in heaven. That's one of the Bible's ways of talking about the whole salvation package. It's all over the Bible. Ancient kings were fond of recording the names of their citizens in a big book. Those who were in the citizen's book were citizens, and they were, they were due the privileges of being such citizens. 
And the Bible adopts that same imagery for heaven's citizens. Those who are going to heaven are already, as it were, recorded in a heavenly log. And these names were written in that book, Revelation 13 tells us, when? Before the foundation of the world, these names were written in. And those same names, Revelation 3, says will never be blotted out. It's not written in pencil. It has no blots, pages torn. So all this signifies for us proof of our heavenly citizenship if we believe our name is in there. It means that we are entitled to heavenly property and heavenly privileges. We're citizens. It means that it won't change. It's, it's personal and it's permanent. When the roll is called up yonder, we'll be there if our name is written in this book. Is your name written in this book? Those who are not written in this book will be cast into eternal fire, Revelation says. We must know that our names are written in this book. You might rightly wonder this evening, is my name written in this book? Could it be settled already? Is there anything I can do? And then again, some of you might, might actually have your name written in this book of life, and yet you wonder, you really wonder. It seems mysterious that there's this book it seems like God might, at the end, be capricious or arbitrary. That it could be like making a reservation at a hotel, but then you drive 2,000 miles to get there. And you go to check in in the middle of the night, and they say, we don't have your name. And you go, what? What are you talking about? I have this right here. I made the phone call. I spoke with Betty. She promised. I'm sorry, your name's not in here. That's it? There's nothing else you can do? No, we're all full, sorry. Well, it won't be like that, this mysterious vanishing of your name or, or reservation. We know how this thing of salvation works. Therefore, we can understand a little bit about why people's names are written in and why they're not. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that you needed the Savior that would die in your place? Do you believe that Jesus can, by virtue of his death and resurrection, cover all of your sins and cancel all of your debt? Because those who are written in this book either already believe that or will one day believe that. And if you believe that tonight, then guess what? You don't need to peer into the book and find your name. Oh, good, it's there. You can know, just like you can know that Jesus died for you because you believe it to be true, so you can believe then that your name is in this book of life. It's not that mysterious. It's certainly not capricious or arbitrary. Those who confess Christ and rely on the cross alone for their eternal salvation will not be turned away. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Have you ever come to him? If not, do so. Tonight, do so. 
And if you've done that before, if you still confess Christ, if you still believe that he covers your sins, then you are not only in that book of life, but you must rejoice in it. You must, just like Jesus told these 72, you surely know this means everyone who's in it should rejoice in this above all else. This is a far greater joy than any ministry success story. To those who know what it means to not be in this book, to not be included in salvation, to them, being saved and being in this book is everything. There's nothing better. There's nothing sweeter. Charles Spurgeon, that London preacher of the 1800s, he said, that one word, saved, is enough to make the heart dance as long as life remains. Saved. Let us hang out our banners and set the bells a-ringing. Saved. What a sweet sound it is to the man who is wrecked and sees the vessel going down, but at that moment discovers the lifeboat is near and will rescue him from the sinking ship. Were to be snatched from fierce disease just when death was imminent. These are occasions to cry, saved, but to be rescued from sin and hell is the ultimate salvation and demands louder joy. So we will sing of it in life and whisper it in death and chant it throughout all eternity, saved, saved by the Lord. Fanny Crosby, that old blind gal who wrote over 8,000 hymns, didn't often in her hymns express her lack of words for what she was trying to describe. But she did in that old hymn, Redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know the light of his presence, and with me he does continually dwell. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and redeemed his child, and forever I am. Now, why is a name being written in the book of life in heaven to be of greater joy than conquering demons? It might seem like that's a given. You're in. But man, to conquer demons, that's head and shoulders above. And maybe that's exactly why this is even of greater joy. This is most foundational. You see, without this joy of being included in the book of life, what good would it be to be able to conquer demons? What joy could there really be? Conquering demons, knowing one day we would join them in eternal destruction. Maybe it's of greater joy than conquering demons to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life because this is what's available to every little soul who confesses Christ and finds themselves needy and desperate for a Savior. 
Maybe this joy is of greater joy because it doesn't come and go. It's not selective. It's not here or there. You see, successes, spiritual ministry successes aren't for everyone. Not all of us will be a a Billy Graham, a Martin Luther. You might feel that whatever station the Lord has put you in and gifts he's given you, that they're meager. But you have this greater joy. Even those who are blessed with great fruit through their hands in ministry, it doesn't always last. Those same people sometimes find themselves in a very different season of life. Another London preacher, about 100 years after Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones was his name. He was used mightily of the Lord to pastor and to preach to thousands upon thousands. And countless were saved and countless more were affected by his preaching ministry. When he was of old age and in poor health, retired at home and doing little more than just simply resting. His old friend Ian Murray paid him a visit and asked him if this was difficult for him. He asked, how are you coping with this great change in calling and service? Lloyd-Jones simply replied, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He then said, I am perfectly content. I suspect, though, that none of us will say that in old age if we don't start practicing it and preaching it to ourselves more now. So can I let Spurgeon take over again here? Listen to Brother Spurgeon on this. He says, if you would rejoice in your name being written in heaven, not only be assured of the fact, but meditate upon it. Let it be frequent in your mind. My name is written in heaven. Beneath the name of my Lord, the Lamb, it's inscribed that I'm one of his redeemed. And he has written me down among his dearly purchased property. He knows me, looks upon me, and regards me as his treasure. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I belong to him. Spurgeon says, go, brothers and sisters, exalt in this, and let the sweet influence of it be daily upon your life. For this joy will make all else on earth pale in comparison with the fact that your names are written in heaven. If you're rich, rejoice not in that. For riches will take themselves wings and fly away, but rather rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Or, he says, turn this inspired text around another way. And if any of you have sorrow, or if you mourn the absence of any earthly good, do not lament it too bitterly, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You're poor? Well, be not despondent. Your name is written in heaven. You're despised. Your name is cast out as evil. But rejoice, for it is written in heaven. You have few gifts and abilities, but your name is written in heaven. 
Well, that would be a good place to stop, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus has actually taken us to heaven and put our joy there and told us to stir it up in remembrance. But actually, Jesus is just getting going. Verse 21. In that same hour, Luke tells us, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We'll read more later. Hold on. But note this. Thirdly, this is the greatest joy. This passage shows us great joy of the 72, a greater joy that they must have in their names written in heaven, and now here, the greatest joy. Why? Because it's a different word. You had joy in verse 17, rejoicing in verse 20. Those are from the same Greek word. But here in verse 21, Luke takes it up a notch using a different Greek word. This one is unique. It's heightened. This is a special kind of joy. We could use words like exuberance or ecstatic to describe this joy. We actually don't have a good verb in English for this kind of joy. Exalt with a U in the middle might be the closest. Or, or jumping for joy as an expression might, might work. But get the scene, just picture this. 72 disciples come back rejoicing in their successful gospel kingdom mission. Jesus joins them in that joy, and he takes it up a notch with a little window into the cosmic realm. I saw Satan fall from heaven, and I've given you all my authority, and nothing will harm you. But he then redirects their focus for an even greater joy. Their names are written in heaven. But then Jesus himself jumps for joy in the Holy Spirit and exclaims, Thank you, Father! I don't think if Hollywood was portraying this chapter, it would have the guts to portray Jesus as happy and as exuberant as I think the passage actually shows him to be. It's a Trinitarian joy. Notice that. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. There's communion going on between the three persons of the Godhead. This communion they've enjoyed from all eternity towards this salvation that's been worked out in eternal election in promises of old, and in the incarnation, and the coming of the Spirit, and in the Spirit's drawing men and women unto faith. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption. That all three persons of the Trinity have been in on this from the beginning. And Jesus knows all about it. He knows more about it than what Scripture even reveals of it. And he thanks the Father. And he does it with joy in the Spirit. What does he thank the Father for? That's the rest of verse 21. That you have hidden these things from the wise in understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
So now we get another window into the salvation we're talking about. It's not just a matter of you deciding whether you can trust in Jesus for your salvation. Then you will know your name is written in heaven. Why would you believe in the first place? Well, it's not because you're wise or understanding. He reveals it to little children. 1 Corinthians 1 makes clear that the gospel of Jesus and him crucified is a stumbling block to some. It's an offense to others. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so if we really understand the beauty and gift of verse 20, that our names are written in heaven, then we will all the more rejoice with the truth of verse 21, that God reveals this truth, not to smart people, to kids, people who are needy, desperate, like babies. He reveals it to them. It's the greatest joy. It's Jesus' joy. It's joy in the Trinity. It's joy in the eternal plan of salvation. Specifically, the revealing of the gospel to those who can't see it on their own. That was so gracious of God. Let us join Jesus in his exuberance for the Trinitarians, for the Trinity's love of those for whom Jesus died and for whom those the Spirit draw near, draw near to in. in in salvation and faith. And then there's a blessing to sum it up. Verse 23 and 24, look down in your Bibles here. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. See and hear. Here's a blessing to sum it up. You're blessed because you see and you hear. What do they see? Well, they saw people transformed by the preaching of the gospel, healing, and the casting out of demons. They saw that. They saw the kingdom come in tangible ways. They then heard Jesus' word of assurance about their names written in heaven, his commendation for their greater joy in their salvation. They also heard Jesus have a Trinitarian communing moment of great joy about the revelation of the gospel to some and not others. They saw and heard things that prophets and kings of old would have loved to hear and see. David didn't see it. Not like that. I don't, to my knowledge, David didn't see a demon cast out. Moses didn't hear what these 72 fellows heard. Not Isaiah, not Hezekiah, on and on we could go. What great privilege. And tonight we've seen and heard what they saw and heard. What privilege we have. 
we even have more than what they had at that moment. We know about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. We have a full Bible with a lot of information in it. We have given to us in this word a word about a meal that Jesus gave us for remembering him and remembering what he did. So later in Luke, Luke 22, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table with the apostles and he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. From there, Jesus left and he went to the cross he died a death in the place of sinners it looked like defeat but it was actually for his greater glory and for our eternal good all who believe that he died for their sins are saved 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 